A lot of artificial intelligence is developed in idealized environments. Games like Atari and Go, or computer simulations that don't encounter the hurdles of a real world with all its unpredictability. For that reason, some of the hardest, and perhaps also most promising work in AI lies in the realm of robotics. Because in robotics, the complexities of the real world cannot be escaped. Today's guest has been pioneering exactly that. He was the first to train a deep neural network that allowed a real robot to acquire a vision-based control system learned from its own trial and error. This was the PR2 robot at Berkeley learning to manipulate objects. From there, he started scaling up robot learning at Google and has continued to lead the way in robot learning and in AI more generally. I am, of course, talking about my great friend, collaborator, Berkeley colleague, and robot learning pioneer, Professor Sergey Levin. Sergey, so great to have you here with us. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Peter, and thank you for the perhaps overly generous introduction, but I, I appreciate you uh, having me here. I think it's, it's hard to be overly generous with everything you've accomplished and you're continuing to do. Now, before we dive into the things you're, you're working on today, I'd like to take a, a step back to your PhD days, because at some point you were a PhD student, right? <laughs> and you're doing your PhD at Stanford. And as I understand it, you're doing your PhD and right in the middle of your PhD, the ImageNet moment slash AlexNet moment happen where deep neural nets are proven to be the clear best approach to computer vision and promising for everything else from there as a lot of people were thinking, of course. And I'm curious, how did it affect your PhD work? Yeah, so I think if, if I'm being truthful about it, I don't think I was actually sufficiently plugged into the machine learning community to actually be too aware of that. I mean, I heard about the paper and all that, and I, I'm like, I, I saw Alex Krzyzewski's talk. But I think I actually was much more aware of all that stuff when I took Andrew Ng's course. He taught a graduate seminar course basically on, on deep learning. I think this was in 2011. And I got really interested in that stuff because up until then I had been working on nonlinear function approximation for character animation, but nonlinear function approximation using Gaussian processes. Because I figured out pretty early on in my PhD that having hand-engineered features for controlling, in that case, virtual characters was very limiting. And I, I wanted to figure out some way to do it that was uh, more automated. And I, I went with Gaussian processes because they were cool and had lots of math and it was kind of fun to mess around with them. So I guess conveniently enough for me that Andrew Ng taught his course right before the uh, Krzyzewski paper. So it was around the same time. And I got pretty excited about that, actually. I, I tried to set up a bunch of systems for character animation using deep neural nets. They didn't really work, mostly because at the time the primary way to do that sort of stuff if you wanted generative models was using restricted Boltzmann machines, which are, again, mathematically very elegant, but a little tricky to get to work. I had to spend a lot of time messing around with like Russell Akwudinov's uh, MATLAB code, for example. But I did end up actually getting a kind of a, a strange hybrid system to work for a deep RL application around. Um, this would have been like end of 2011 and it was published in mid-2012. This was basically kind of the first version of guided policy search, which was essentially policy gradients with important sampling. Kind of, you know, somewhat similar conceptually to what later became PPO. So policy grades with importance weights and deep nets. Uh, at that time, it was mostly based on the Doina pre-cut work. 
And that was kind of all right. Like that, that could do animation with neural nets for like humanoid characters. But yeah, I think, I think if I'm being truthful about it, the, the inspiration for me for that didn't really come from the Krzyzewski paper. It came from Andrew Ng teaching a course where he talked about now he finally thought that we would get truly powerful AI systems in his lifetime. And I was like, well, okay, if this guy thinks that there's some kind of uh, phase change happening, then I should probably pay attention to it. So Andrew was preceding the breakthrough in some sense in his course by a year, and that, that allowed you to get going a year or inspired you to get going a year early. Probably inspired a lot of folks in his class to get going a year early. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear that. In season one of the podcast, we've talked a lot about deep learning playing such a big role in AI, but mostly in the context of supervised learning. And what you're describing here, of course, is not exactly supervised learning anymore. It's deep learning for decision making for essentially reinforcement learning. Can you maybe explain the difference between the two and, and why reinforcement learning can maybe be an additional interesting thing to learn about in addition to supervised learning. Yeah, and I think there's like a, a number of different ways of phrasing it. So maybe maybe I'll, I'll try a slightly different one just to kind of give your audience a less standard perspective. So if we, if we think about a lot of the really exciting things that we've seen from large, powerful neural net models like GPT-3 or things like that, these models seemingly make inferences about how the world works, you can ask them like, okay, you know, if I, if I drink a cup of tea, what will happen? If I drink a cup of poison, what will happen? Like, and then they'll kind of make a guess as to the causal structure. But ultimately, what they're trained to do is they're trained to do prediction. And, you know, a computer vision system is trained to do prediction about, let's say, image labels. A language model is trained to make predictions that are more sophisticated about what will be said next, but it's still fundamentally a prediction problem. Reinforcement learning is a mechanism that we can use to train models to maximize utility. Conceptually, there's actually a big difference between learning to do prediction and learning to maximize utility. Because if you're, ma if you're maximizing utility, you don't have to necessarily do what was done in the data. You could actually come up with new strategies informed by what you've seen in the data. So it's the difference between copy what I showed you versus use what I showed you to figure out how to accomplish your goals. And that's actually a really big difference. You know, in, in a sense, there's a major component of the AI problem that is missing if all you're doing is prediction. But once you can train your system to maximize utility, to take actions to actually accomplish its desired goals, now you've kind of got you know, at least all of the moving parts that in principle you would need and you just have to figure out all the other things, how to actually put them together in the right way. So that, that's, the, that's the really big difference. Now, of course, there's a lot more that goes into actually making reinforcement learning work. For example, you could have active reinforcement learning where you have trial and error learning. You could have offline reinforcement learning from data. You could have actor critic algorithms, model-based RL, et cetera. So there's a lot of those components, but the really big fundamental difference is between learning to predict versus learning to choose actions to intentionally accomplish your goals. And now, what kind of new applications does that open up? So I think that this is, this is actually a, a fairly complex answer between what we want those applications to be, what they've actually been, and, and what they might be in the future. So in terms of the like actual applications, in terms of things that actually people use uh, reinforcement learning for in the real world, there's actually a very good chance that uh, anyone listening to this has interacted with reinforcement learning agents, albeit not in a form that they might be familiar with, through things like uh, recommender systems and advertising and so on. So that's it's actually a really big thing on the web for uh, you know suggesting content to you or suggesting advertisements. In terms of what what I work on, also what you work on, a lot of it revolves around taking these reinforcement learning ideas and actually trying to situate them in the real world. 
So the, you know, this is what a lot of us as, as AI researchers really get excited about is, you know, can we make AI systems that learn and interact with reality in, in a way that's a little bit analogous to how we do, we do it. So that's where robotics comes in. That's where, you know, other embodied systems like autonomous vehicles come in. Now, right now, reinforcement learning is not a major, uh, you know, application in, in robotics for like systems that you actually like use and buy and so on. But I think it's right there on the cusp and in terms of the scientific experiments, in terms of R&D at, at companies that are actually working on applications, there's a lot of that starting to show up. And I think that we're right on the cusp of seeing applications there, you know, for some of the work that I've been involved with, with X at the Alphabet company formerly known as Google X, they've already announced that they have an entire group working on the everyday robot project where they are trying to apply reinforcement learning in that, in their case, to service robots. So there's a lot of that happening, but currently mostly as far as I know in R&D, although it seems like it's like right there on the cusp. In terms of where we might see it in the future, it could be that once we can develop powerful RL systems that are sufficiently scalable and that can utilize data and utilize also the right amount of human expertise, perhaps we could apply it even more broadly. Perhaps in the future, in many of the settings where we're currently approaching them as prediction problems, we might start approaching them as RL problems. Maybe it makes sense, for instance, to use RL to figure out a system to recommend a course of treatment to a doctor for a patient. So the RL system examines the features, examines the test results, and then starts suggesting things. Or maybe uh, perhaps we would regulate you know, the, the interest rate or the tax rate based on a reinforcement learning algorithm in the future. So conceivably, a lot of these problems that currently we would like to use AI to improve that we approach as prediction might in the future be approached with reinforcement learning. But that's, of course, more speculative. Now. When you were working on your PhD, Sergey, you were working in reinforcement learning in the context of graphics. And then you made a very deliberate decision to expand and possibly even emphasize more robotics than graphics from there. How did you make that decision? Well, I made the deliberate decision to come work in your lab. <laughs> Until that point, I worked entirely on computer graphics. In fact, you were the one who told me that you wanted less, less animation and more robotics. So I, I think I'm going to blame that, that one on you. But I think the, the truth is that there's actually something that is much more interesting and perhaps much less limiting about uh, real world embodied systems than virtual ones. Because, you know, as AI, this is, gonna, this is a somewhat high level statement, but as AI researchers, we often like to think that the hardest part of the problem is like actually making the computer brain, like how do you get the computer to actually like reason and, and make decisions. But there is also the rest of the world and creating the rest of the world is hard too. And if you're going to, going to study AI systems that are embodied the way that we are in a simulator, then you, at some point you need to basically create the universe. And we can create okay universes actually, we've gotten pretty good at it, but we still can't create them with the kind of richness and complexity that the real world has. I think at this point where we are in the development of AI, we can make progress in simulation, but at some point we're going to hit a wall. We're going to hit, we're going to get to a point where actually making the world rich and complex enough is actually uh, holding us back. Uh, it might not be holding us back technologically. It may be more a matter of effort. At some point it might hold us back technologically, but either way, it seems like there are actually you know challenges that people I think sometimes don't appreciate with um, you know the difference between simulated and real environments. That there's the the kind of the, the old adage is that if your system is not situated in an environment that demands intelligence then it will not have intelligence. Like regardless of which algorithm you equip it with, it won't do something smart, creative, or emergent if, that's, if that is not required in the setting that you put it in. So I think for that reason, actually, the real world affords a lot of opportunities for making meaningful progress in AI. 
Uh, a lot of kind of open-ended learning can be done in real-world settings. A lot of interactions with, with human beings become a lot more natural. Studying diversity and variability becomes easier in the real world and in simulation. So if I want to, for example, train my robot to grasp varied objects in simulation, I have to put a lot of effort into content creation. In the real world, I can uh, drive down to Costco and purchase a bunch of junk and then throw it in front of the robot. So I think there's actually a lot to be said for learning in the real world. Now, I, th I think it's a really interesting distinction you're making here, Sergey. You're saying explicitly learning in the real world. In the past, I might have said learning with a real robot, but you've really shifted that conversation from it's not just about the real robot, it's about the real world being so much richer because a robot in the lab might still be in a pretty boring environment. But once you take the robot into the real world, it's the real world part that matters. And one of the projects that really stands out here that you're working on right now, as I understand, you have a mobile robot that is actually roaming in the real world, collecting data on its own. Is that right? Can you say a bit more about that project? Yeah, for sure. So we actually presented the kind of first phase of that work at Coral. This was some work that was led by Charles Sun, uh, Yadre Orbeck, and also Colleen Devon and Glenn Brissett, uh, where we took a, a really simple, really cheap mobile manipulator. It's basically the, the local bot developed at Facebook. It's a, it's a low cost arm on a little turtle bot base. And our, our aim was not to see if we could get it to do something particularly complicated but to see if we could get it to do something that was a little closer to a lifelong learning experiment. So, you know, oftentimes when we run robotic learning experiments in the real world, we're very strapped for time. There's a lot of kind of manual effort that goes into it. So we, we worry a lot about sample efficiency. And I think when we do that, we end up making some trade-offs that are perhaps not ideal for final performance. So we have an experiment, okay, we say, okay, we can really realistically only do an experiment that's like four to six hours long because uh, you know you just can't have a person in the lab overseeing this for much longer than that. They need to go to the bathroom, they need to eat lunch, you know, you can't have these things going for forever. So then the problem really becomes like, what kind of thing can you learn in four to six hours? With this thing, our, we, we said, okay, well, what if we just like actually put in the effort and make it as fully autonomous as we possibly can? to remove the need to have a person there at all. And can we just let it loose and see what it can do? And we picked a fairly simple task. We weren't trying to do anything complicated. We really just wanted to see essentially the scaling law. Like the, the more it runs, does it like keep getting better and better? Because in principle, it really should. So we set it up so that there's a essentially a kind of a practicing strategy. So the, the job of the robot was to basically clean up a room, like kind of putter around, pick up things, put them away. And it had a practicing strategy where if it picked everything up, it would go and deposit it back down and, and so on. And, and there was some engineering that went into making sure that it didn't like get stuck in corners and things like that. But once we had done all that, we could basically switch it on. And as, as long as the battery held out, it would just keep, keep doing its thing. So then we could just keep running it and running it. And what we saw is that, you know, maybe this is not surprising, but I think it's kind of pretty nice validation is that the kind of scaling process does hold. Like, you know, you train it for 20 hours and it's kind of okay. It's like kind of on par with like a good scripted strategy for cleaning up the room. But you run it for 40 hours and it actually keeps going. In fact, when we plotted the, the curve of success rate to hours, it's actually a straight line. So it's not, it's not even slowing down. It just keeps going and going and going. And by like 60 hours, its success rate is like in the 90% range or something like that. 
So just, and, and the slope seemingly is still going up. At that point, we had to actually vacate the room where it was uh, practicing because that was also when the lockdown ended and everyone started moving back in. Uh, so we had commandeered a conference room. We had to give it up. So we don't know what happens after 60 hours. But to me, that was actually a pretty nice validation that if you actually get learning to be autonomous in the real world, the thing actually works. Like it actually keeps getting better. And maybe we should find a conference room that is not occupied so that we run it for 100 hours or 120 hours because, you know, it just keeps going up. So for that reason, I'm actually... You know, one of the things I'm actually focusing on a lot in the in the work in my group and, and what my students uh, have been focusing on is actually enabling not just better RL algorithms, but more autonomous RL algorithms. Ones that that you can you can take a a machine, drop it into the world, switch it on, and kind of leave it to its own devices, and it would not only learn but also scaffold its learning appropriately by setting itself up to practice, resetting all that stuff. Because I think that's actually a really powerful technology if we can make it work, because it just enables the thing to just keep getting better and better. Now, when you see the robots moving around in the conference room, cleaning it up, how about expanding it to more rooms? How about, you know, if you had one in your room at home, where you're calling in from now? What if you, you know, your students had one at home? Is, is that reasonable? Yeah. So that's actually what we're trying to do now. It's definitely reasonable. It's difficult. I think also when we start moving in that direction, it does introduce you know additional learning challenges, but also additional engineering challenges, like fairly mundane ones, ones that you know companies like like iRobot have already somewhat solved with their with their platforms, but that we have to get right. So robustifying something to the degree where you can let it loose in the real world is tough. It's definitely doable. It's just we have to we have to put in a lot of legwork to get that done. And something that's actually kind of that this got me thinking about is for a lot of these safety robustness issues, they're important. They're also a little bit of a bootstrap problem in the sense that you kind of have to do it once and then let the thing loose. And that kind of gets me thinking that maybe in the long run, a lot of that robustness will actually come not from us engineering the system very carefully. It might actually come from the system having a notion of common sense developed from its own prior experience. So we can't do that right now because the robot has very limited prior experience. But perhaps it is, in effect, a one-time cost once it gets enough experience to at least know well enough to not fall down the stairs, then we won't have to put in lots of effort into engineering those things manually anymore. But the first time around, we have to put something in. Now, one of the things that always intrigued me, Sergey, and this goes several years back actually, was before you started as a professor, you took a gap year and you spent it at, at Google. And you essentially decided to tackle the problem of grasping. A robot picking up an object reliably, any kind of object, very hard problem, of course. But you decided to tackle it in a way that nobody else was tackling it at the time. It was tackled with analytic approaches, careful geometric calculations, robustness measures that were you know, cleverly designed. But you did something completely different. Can you say a bit about that and, and what, what made you think that this would actually be possible? Yeah, good question. For full disclosure, I do want to clarify that there were at least two other people that were thinking about the problem the same way, and that was Laurel Pinto and Abhinav Gupta, because they came out with a work that was along similar lines to what I was trying to do about eight months prior to me. So I, I had actually already started working on it at that point, but they definitely got in ahead of that, and they definitely had a, a really, a really impressive vision in that regard. But as to what the idea is, the way that I had been thinking about it, and I also I think I need to credit this partly to Ilya Sutskever because he was the one who kind of pushed me to think hard about this problem is that like, what is a thing, and this is, you know, remember this is like circa 2015, what is a thing that deep learning could do in robotics that would, you know, essentially register as 
Ailey referred to this somewhat grandiosely as the ImageNet moment, but the point is something where the problem was sort of contained and well-scoped enough, yet relevant enough, and ripe to be significantly improved on with deep learning. And when he asked me that, I was thinking, well, okay, so, you know, this manipulation stuff that I'm doing, it's cool, it's probably pretty hard. You know, I believe in it a lot, but it's realistically, it's like a little ways off. But on the other hand, robotic grasping is something that we can scope very cleanly. We can say you have one job and one job only, which is to like actually pick up the thing. It's broad enough that everybody wants it. And at the same time, there are many ways to reduce it to problem. You know, there are ways to reduce it to reinforced learning problems. There are even actually ways to reduce it just to supervised uh, learning problems if you want to by just supervising it with the success and failure of a grasp point. So it seems like one of those things where it's actually like not too bad to collect a very large data set. It's broad enough that everyone would want it, but at the same time narrow enough that we can scope it very cleanly. So that, that seemed like a, a really good problem statement, something that you know we could actually address at scale and really try to understand whether the scalability that we saw from deep learning methods in computer vision and NLP and so on could in fact extend to robotics. Right, because again, circa 2015, at that point, that had not, to my knowledge, really been demonstrated. There were robotics demos, but there wasn't the kind of demonstration of scale, the kind of broad generalization. So the major challenge to enable that, you know, there was a technological challenge in like coding up the algorithms, but there was also a major data collection challenge. And there was, you know, I, I think I got a little bit lucky in that regard, where there was kind of a transitional period at Google at the time where a few years prior, they had purchased these different robotics companies, they had acquired them, they integrated them into a single unit, and then they were transitioning them over to kind of a different format. They basically were trying to figure out, you know, what do we do next in the robotics world? And one of the things that happened is that there were, you know, quite a few robotics platforms that they had built as part of some previous uh, efforts that were essentially sitting around unused in a warehouse somewhere in Redwood City. So we got one of the two of those robotic arms in the lab. And then I asked, you know, my colleagues, Marinella Kalakrishnan and Peter Pastor, it's like, hey guys, these things that we, we've set up, they're pretty cool, they're pretty nice arms. Do we have any more of them? They poked around and like, yeah, we've got like 30 more of them. And like, nobody needs them, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> so I was like, huh, okay. So you've got, you've got just like 30 of these nice robotic arms sitting around. Can we just like grab, again, a conference room? You'll notice there's a pattern to all of these, all these projects end when we have to vacate a conference room. Can we grab a big conference room and just set them all up? and essentially have like a, a data generation factory in effect, because if we can set that up, then it will be way easier to do this grasping thing because we can just like keep running them for days and days and days. And there's like 30 of them. So even if we mess up and we break a couple, like it seems like nobody needs them, right? So we can just go and do this. Now it wasn't quite that easy actually, because it turns out that the cost is not actually the arms, it's the people that like put them there and do all the work. And I, I couldn't do that all by myself. So Peter and Mernal helped a ton with that, but then we had to get a lot more support with things like, you know, getting an electrician to come in and wire the thing. So it was a little more of an undertaking. Uh, Jeff Dean was very supportive of that. He put in a, a bit of effort to get the organizational stuff and Vincent Van Hook as well, who later became the head of Google Robotics. We were fortunate enough to get the support from kind of the, the higher ups and to just get lucky and essentially have this like big pile of robots drop in our lap. And with that, we were actually able to collect this huge data set. It took us months to do, but in the end, we did get very effective generalization from that. And beyond that, like, you know, one of the things that I, that I experimented with a lot in that project was not just generalization in the sense of like, you can throw a new object in front of the robot and it'll pick it up, but also how it reacts to different kinds of objects. Because, you know, as you said, prior to that, grasping was typically thought of as a kind of a geometry problem, right? You figure out the shape of the thing and then figure out where you need to put the fingers to pick it up. Whereas this was experiential. It was learned from experience, from trials. And we could ask, well, what, do you, what does the system learn differently than a more geometric system? And there were a few 
hints, some of them good, some of them bad. One of the things that really frustrated me is we had a test set of objects. It was unseen objects. We intentionally actually bought new ones to make sure that they weren't anything that was dropped in front of the robot by accident previously. And one of the objects there was a stapler. I was like, okay, stapler is fine. They're kind of these rectangular blocky things, except this one was pink. Okay, fine, a pink stapler. The robot would never pick up the pink stapler correctly. It kept trying to shove the fingers into the stapler. And we think the reason for it is that during training, we had quite a few clothing items. But the clothing items had to be small because they need to fit in the bin in front of the robot. So they were baby clothes. And baby clothes tend to be these like soft pastel colors, kind of pink, kind of light blue, that sort of thing. So the robot probably concluded this pink stapler is like those other pink things it's seen before and that pink means baby clothes. So it kept like sh trying to shove the finger into the stapler instead of actually like cage it on, on the sides the way it should. Slightly inspired by that, we started messing around with like, you know, different objects that kind of look similar but had different material properties and stuff like that. And it, except for these false correlations, most of the time it would actually figure out that softer things are ones that you should pinch and kind of shove the fingers into the middle, whereas rigid things are ones that it should pick up on both sides. And in, in the video accompanying the paper, I actually have a demonstration where I intentionally pick out a bunch of blue objects that are kind of roughly similar shape and size but have different materials and show that it does in fact adopt different strategies except in the, in, the, in the confusing case of the pink stapler. It's very interesting you bring this up because it's, it's all in the data in some sense, right? It's the, the data was driving the robot to believe that anything pink could follow a fixed strategy of pinching. Whereas it turns out there are other pink things it's never seen in its data. And once you've presented enough of that new type of pink object, it'll learn it, of course. Another thing that really stood out to me from that work, Sergey, and, and you're still working on this today, right? I mean, this is, this is a hard problem to truly reliably pick objects, is that the current incarnations actually have strategies in some sense. Meaning, when I watch the video, I see things where the robot is not just saying, this is where I'm going to grasp and this is exactly what I'm going to do. The robot might decide to push something and corner it and know that it's easier to pick it up that way or pull something out of the way from other objects that have an easier way to pick it. And it seems like those are the kind of things that those are truly behaviors, right? I mean, that, that, that's not a one-time decision of a label, here is where I'm going. It's a full behavior to generate grasping capabilities. And so that to me is really interesting that that's really reinforcement learning, what, what it can give us compared to a supervised learning approach might not lend itself to discover these behaviors. Yeah, that's a very good point. And I think just kind of more broadly as, as, as AI researchers, I think this is probably uh, something that holds true, not just for me, but for, for many of us, is that one of the most exciting things is when we see the machine figure out something that we didn't expect, well, hopefully something desirable. <laughs> and that's, that's really exciting because that sort of, sort of gives this glimmer of hope that like, you know, this, this is not just about getting something that does the same thing that a person does. It's actually about getting something that, that has a degree of creativity. Like, you know, they, one, one of the most exciting things for the, the AlphaGo match was like that one move where the experts looked at it and it's like, oh, this is like not a move that, that, that we learned about when we learned to play Go. Like it was, it was something that, that, that looked new. With these robotic systems, it's uh, somehow for me, it was always easier to notice those things when I'm like actually there and like watching it do stuff. It's a little hard to communicate in a paper, but there's definitely some of that that happens. I remember when I was working on a project on um, kind of a, a continual version of this grasping system with Ryan Julian and, uh, and Carol Hausman, Ryan actually tried a, an experiment where he intentionally set up kind of more difficult objects. He set up these bottles in front of the robot and he was like, huh, what it did is it went and knocked down every bottle so that it was on its side 
and then it picked like the the one that was easiest to pick out of the bunch. So it, it would do the, these kind of funny things. Another one we had, this was actually a simulated experiment, but kind of similar principle where the task was to take a bunch of blocks and insert them carefully into kind of a fitted slots. And what the robot would do is instead of actually picking up the blocks, it would just sort of sweep the arm across the bin to just like shove them all into, you know, kind of almost like golf style so that they would land somewhere close to the fixture. And then it would go in and just insert them locally. So it, it would figure out these strategies and you really need the right level of scale for that to start emerging because if you have, if you have a very small scale experiment where everything is like very, very tightly set up so there's really only one way to do it so that you can do it quickly, then you see a lot less of that. But if you have a larger scale experiment where you have lots of different objects, lots of different variability, then there's a lot more room for that kind of emergence stuff to happen. Yeah, and in some sense, when I think about it, I feel like what we're doing at Coverant is, to a great extent, inspired by your work and, as you alluded to, Laurel Pinto's work on data-driven, learning-driven grasping. But then, in some sense, our conclusion was, if we really want to keep collecting data, more interesting data, one approach is you find more and more spare robots at Google and you keep growing your, your data collection setup. Our thinking then, in some sense, was, Closer to some of the projects you're, you're often pushing today yourself also in, in your, your other research projects is we got to collect it in the real world and the only way to scale it up is to make it useful. If we can build something that usefully grasps in the real world, people will want it, people will buy it. And so we'll, we can deploy as many robots as we want because people will actually pay to get these robots and then they'll keep getting better and better and better, helping out more and more wherever they are. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I do suspect that to some extent, robotic learning is one of those technologies where it won't be the same if it's at a small scale than at a large scale. There's like this significant bootstrap issue. And once that bootstrap issue is overcome, I think the capabilities can be a lot broader. Just from a science standpoint, you know, there are domains where we can study that already. So certainly if we're talking about mobile robots, you know, there's plenty of driving data around and, and studying data-driven methods in that setting is, you know, is something that could be done now. But even with manipulation systems, I mean, yeah, you, know, you have to put some work into getting them set up into getting that bootstrap process in, but it's not that bad. Like it, it, it's doable. If you consider how much work we put into like making a, a transformer run efficiently on a GPU, it's not like the engineering effort is, is prohibitive. It's, it's kind of in that same ballpark. So I think that that's doable. But I think there's also certain scientific questions just on the algorithm side that we worry about a lot less when we're not doing the, the real data stuff. For example, I mentioned this driving instance. There's lots of driving data. Why isn't everybody doing reinforcement learning for driving? You know, there are some people that are doing it, but it's certainly not what most reinforcement learning researchers are doing. Well, it turns out there's actually major technical challenges that arise when you start thinking about combining reinforcement learning with previously collected data. And it's, it's something that my group has been working on a lot, as well as many others. Sometimes this goes under the name of offline reinforcement learning, but it's really less about it being offline and more about it being able to consume previously collected data. And that's not something that classically reinforcement learning researchers worry very much about because classically reinforcement learning is approached as an online interactive system. And it can be online and interactive, that's great, but if you can also load it up with large amounts of previous data, maybe, you know, in the case of, of Covariant from all the deployments you guys have, in the case of a car from all the human drivers, and in the case of my robot from all the previous experiments that my students have done. If you can load it up with that, then you can get much more powerful generalization. In a sense, kind of the self-supervised learning transformation that we're seeing in NLP and vision is based on that principle in supervised learning land. So can we have something like that in RL? And it turns out there's a lot of interesting algorithms challenges there. And for anyone listening to this, you know, if you are a researcher working on RL, that seems like a great topic to tackle right now. You've actually made a ton of progress in offline 
reinforcement learning in, in the past couple of years. And maybe just to tease up a bit more specifically to our audience, Sergey, can, can you clarify what makes offline reinforcement learning different from the more canonical online reinforcement learning? And why does that make it hard in some ways, but also why does that offer many opportunities? Yeah. So I really started to realize how important this is when I, when I got to talking to more people who actually wanted to use RL. Like I talked to some folks that were working on like a microscopy application. They were like, well, we need to like steer our microscope so that it properly reconstructs the shape of this thing. And we've got a bunch of like data from a grad student going in and doing this manually. Can we use RL to automate the microscope? And they're like, well, uh, how long can you run the microscope? And like, well, it needs like all this like, you know, liquid nitrogen to be hooked up and so on. So like we could get like a, a couple of pictures every day or something. I go, okay, well, that's not going to happen. <laughs> but they have all this prior data from like, you know, the, the decade of research they've done on this thing. Talk to a, a company doing, uh, you know, HVAC stuff, right? So, well, no, we can't like experiment with like different thermostat settings. People in the building are going to rebel, but we've got all the historical data from like the past however many years, right? So there's just all these settings where, where this kind of stuff comes up, where the problems look like decision-making problems, but the, the active online interaction that the classic RL framework prescribes is very difficult or, or infeasible. Right. You know, classically, the way that everyone explains reinforcement learning is that it's like you train a dog, like you give it a treat if it does something good, you punish it if it does something bad. But the way that everyone would like to use it is to say, well, I've got my data, you know, I've got my baseline system that's been running for a decade. Can I just like take all this data and train them a better policy? And that's basically what offline reinforcement learning does. So to me, it's exciting because of this hypothetical that we can take lots of robot data and use it to basically bootstrap the robot. But I think to many other uh, people in the world, it's exciting because they can take the data they've already got and distill out a better policy from it. So, so that's the big promise of the idea. Now, what's the challenge? Well, the challenge is that if we think about the active process, the one where it's like you train a dog, if the AI agent has some idea about an action that might be good, but it doesn't know if it's good, what is it going to do? Well, it's going to go and try that action, experience the outcome, and adjust its understanding accordingly. But if you have an offline RL system, and it looks at all this data and it decides this action, the one that you didn't take, ah, you know, you didn't try setting the thermostat to 150 degrees. You've never tried that. Maybe that's a good idea, right? Like, no, no, it's not a good idea. It's just, it's just there's nothing in the data where you've seen 150 degrees, so you don't know that like people are going to freak out and everyone's going to leave the building as soon as you do that. You've just never seen that, so you don't know it. So it might look good to you, but it, it, it's just because you're making a false inference based on incomplete data. So we don't usually worry about that in online RL, but we do worry about that a lot in offline RL. In fact, that's the biggest challenge in offline RL is how do you determine if a particular conclusion you've drawn from the data about a counterfactual query, counterfactual meaning what would happen if I did this other thing, is that inference actually accurate or is it simply a delusion caused by incomplete data? So detecting and correcting these delusions is basically the primary challenge. It's a very similar challenge to what we face when we're trying to do causal inference. It's a very similar challenge to what we face when we try to like determine treatment effects for drugs. Uh, it's using existing data to determine the effect of an action. And it's a big challenge. But as you said, we've, you know, the community collectively has made a lot of progress on this. Over you know, just the last like kind of 18 months or so, I would say these methods have gone from a state where they're basically not usable to one where we can actually you know, start using them for things uh, in reality. We're, we're collaborating right now with a team at CMU on trying to apply this for power grid regulation. We're working on these things for things like dialogue, and it's, it seems like there's actually headway to be made now with the algorithms that have come along just in the last 18 months. Now, that's another part that's so interesting here, I think, is that the same algorithm 
actually is applicable across so many application domains. You're talking about robotics, dialogue, HVAC control, electrical grid, all in the same breath, pretty much, because the same approach you're developing can be applied across them as long as you feed it, of course, data from that domain. And when we zoom out a little bit on, on that front, when you think about applications you're personally excited about, what's on that list? So the things that I find really exciting are generally things that have the potential to lead to some sort of emergent behavior. Because you know, I, I think that the, the big power of generalization is not just in doing more of the same, but in, in, in the, the inventiveness and in coming up with, with new solutions. So that's why I actually think that a lot of the real world stuff is the most exciting. Certainly the robotics stuff, I think also applications that involve some sort of interaction with people are really exciting because interactions with people are very complex. And that's also a place where there's room for potentially really interesting um, emergent behavior. You know, if you imagine a, a bot that is a chatbot that is talking to a person, let's say the person is trying to figure out the answer to some question, can they come up with a way to ask them the right prompts to make it more efficient for them to get the answer to their question, right? So there's, there's all these subtleties of interaction that, you know, people are pretty good at, but we're very bad at articulating how to do them, right? This is kind of the, the essence of expertise. It's something that you really know how to do it. You're very proficient when asked to do it, but you can't really explain directly to somebody like the rules for doing it. And that's something that perhaps an RL system could actually figure out from seeing lots of, in the case of the question answering, lots of like humans doing that, that task. So the thing that all these things have in common is the potential for emergent behavior and the messiness of some really complex uh, real world system, whether it's a physical system in the case of a robot or whether it's a person or you know something else that is complex enough that if we just like code up you know a scripted strategy, it won't exhibit that same kind of expertise. Now talking about new things emerging, one of your recent works is actually on using machine learning to automate some design processes. And that's really intriguing, right? Because design requires so much domain expertise and tends to be very slow. Can you say a bit more about that line of work? Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. So the work you're referring to is, um, well, the most recent one was done actually with the computer architectures team at Google for chip design. But we've also worked on these problems for other applications like applications in biology, for instance. But the basic principle is actually very similar to offline reinforcement learning. So we refer to this as offline model-based optimization. But the, the idea is the following, that if you have some kind of design problem, like let's say that you want to design a drug, and you have experiments that you've conducted where you've tested different kinds of designs, can you take this data set of experiments, examine it, and come up with a better design? In a sense, that's a lot of what uh, you know human scientists do, right? Like we, we look at our results and examine them, think pretty hard about what's going on, and then come up with a better thing to go and test. And sometimes we need to conduct more experiments, and sometimes we look at the data and say, like, okay, now, now I know the answer. This is the thing that you should be doing. So this problem actually looks a lot like a reinforcement learning problem. If you say that your design is your action and all these experiments you've conducted, that's your offline data, this is basically a version of an offline reinforcement learning algorithm. It just lacks the temporal structure. So there's no notion of time steps. There's no notion of like actions and their, their consequences. Just you know, select the design and observe the um, efficacy of that design. So doing all this from data is hard for all the same reasons that the offline RL problem is hard. You want to make sure that you, you can figure out that some conclusion you're drawing is actually supported by the, your data and not just a delusion because you're extrapolating too much. In fact, if we get into the kind of the nitty gritty technical details of this, you know, the way that one might think to do this conventionally is you take a, a deep neural net model and you train it to go from the design to its efficacy. So, you know, so some representation of a drug, like with a graph neural net or something, mapping to the efficacy of that drug. 
and then you would optimize with respect to the input. That's a very sensible idea, but it's also exactly the way that we produce adversarial examples. Right? The procedure for producing an adversarial example is identical to this. So naively trying to do this kind of procedure really doesn't work. It'll create these things that you can feed into your network that will fool it into thinking it's great, but are actually terrible. So we need to develop better algorithms for that, and that's a lot of what we've been doing. But once we have those algorithms, then we could actually try out a lot of these interesting problems. And the particular one that we were studying in collaboration with the, the Google Computer Architectures Group was to design uh, hardware accelerators. Now, this is a little circular. It's basically a neural net trying to design a chip that will train a neural net faster. <laughs> maybe, maybe what would be exciting to do in the future is to actually close the loop to then like, fabricate that chip and use it to design a new chip even faster. But that's not, that's not there yet. So there's, there's this kind of transformer model that looks at the chip architecture parameters and predicts the, its efficacy from data. And the cool thing about that is you can actually condition this model on the kind of workload that you want to run. So if you're trying to train a different kind of neural net, you can condition on something that describes the thing that you want to train and will actually try to optimize a different accelerator for different kinds of workloads. And one of the things that we were able to actually do there is show that this model that we train on a variety of different workloads would then be used in zero shot to optimize the design for a new neural net, basically. And, and that's, that's pretty cool because now that's suggesting that not only can you use prior experimental data, you can actually use data from a, for a variety of different workloads and then use it to create a design for a new workload without ever having tested any designs for that new workload before. And that, that seems to work decently well so far. Now, when hearing about a neural net that is designing chips effectively so it can run faster itself, it's, it's hard to not think singularity, right? <laughs> must, must have been on your mind at least once as you're working on this. Can you maybe, you know, f first say, what is, it, what, what is this concept of singularity and, and put it in context yeah. of what you're doing here? <laughs> okay. Yeah. So the singularity usually refers to the idea that if you have a self-improving uh, machine, that self-improving machine keeps improving itself, which allows it to improve itself even faster. And then that allows it to improve itself even more and so on. And it gets the spiral of exponential growth, where before we know it, it has improved itself to a degree that we are incapable of understanding. I think a lot of people find this notion very scary. I feel like we're, this is often kind of going to be the disconnect between like, if you work on this every day versus uh, otherwise, like, you know, to me, I'm, I'm, I'm just sitting here thinking like, man, if this thing can improve itself and get itself to be faster, my life will be a lot easier. <laughs> my perspective on this right now is that to kind of take a more serious tone is, I think we have a lot more to fear for machines that are not smart enough than machines that are too smart today in, in 2021, because AI systems will be used for real world things. They're already used for real world things, including in contexts where they can cause real harm, real, real damage to people physically and, and emotionally in other ways. And I think having these systems not be smart enough to figure out how to you know, behave appropriately is a much bigger danger right now than having these systems being too smart. So I would be a lot more concerned about my autonomous car not having a fast enough microchip or not having a well enough trained neural net to recognize a pedestrian and maybe risk hitting them than I would be about that car being so smart that it creates a better car that drives you know exponentially faster or something, right? So I think we you know we do have to take these things seriously. But we have to also recognize that machines that are not smart enough also pose a real danger. But now, of course, your work actually goes in this direction also. I mean, your work covers a lot of ground, obviously. <laughs> one, one of your lines of work goes in this direction, right? The offline RL. Is it fair to interpret it as part of it also as the machine, the neural net has to understand what it doesn't understand yet, what it doesn't have support in the data for? 
And then in principle, you could ask it to be cautious in those situations, right? Yeah, precisely. And I think that this goes much deeper even than that, right? So at, at some level, real-world learning and real-world deployment of robotic systems hinges in a really critical way on being able to understand essentially your, your area of competence. So offline RL really like makes that very crisp because it's like in offline RL, if you mess up that part, you'll just crash and burn. But even in regular RL, it's an issue. It's just an issue that we dodge when we work in very constrained simulation environments or very constrained laboratory environments. In any real-world deployment of an RL system, yeah, it'll have to deal with unexpected things happening and has to react to those things in a way that is sensible. Depending on what it's doing, it could react with curiosity. It could react by going and examining that thing a little bit more, or it could react cautiously. But either way, it needs to react in some way that doesn't like damage something or break something. So, you know, your grasping robot probably shouldn't react to like seeing a cat by trying to grasp the cat. Like that's, that's just not a good idea. <laughs> so being aware of uncertainty, estimating uncertainty and having some degree of conservatism in your behavior, I think is actually an indispensable part of these things. And certainly, like I, I think right now, uh, I, I get the feeling that the mainstream RL researcher community is maybe has been made more keenly aware of that with all the offline RL stuff. But the issue was always there, whether it's offline or online, it's really important. Sergey, I think it's a drastic understatement to say that you are a very productive AI researcher and leader. You get so much done in just one year. You know, you can you can make so much progress on so many problems. I have, a, I have some questions about that. First is, what drives you? Because I mean, this must take a substantial amount of your time <laughs> to do what you're doing. What motivates you here? Well. Okay, so, so I think that for probably for, for any scientist that, you know, spends a lot of time doing science, at some level, they have to be driven by just some innate or, I guess, an, an hard to articulate notion that like, this stuff is really cool. So I think if, I, if I'm being really honest about it, like, it's that it's like, this, this stuff is really cool. And the particular stuff that I, that I think is the most cool is actually the possibility that you get a machine that does something that is smart, capable, but not what you expected. Those are sort of the, the really exciting moments. And, and part of why that, that kind of thing really drives me is that it just feels like the, the power in that potentially, the kind of the potential energy in that is enormous. There's sometimes this, this analogy that you make when you know, research is like you're, you're kind of digging for treasure, right? And, and you can kind of imagine the, the cutaway figure where there's like a little guy digging a tunnel and there's some kind of like gemstone on the other side of that tunnel. And I think with AI, the exciting thing is that we don't know if it's like a little gemstone or if it's like an enormous thing the size of a planet. We could be sitting on top of this thing and it's just like its capability is, is huge. Or it could be smaller, we kind of don't know. And there's something really cool about that. If you build this thing and it really has kind of some kind of emergent capability and then you can kind of let it loose and it will actually get better and better, that can be enormously powerful. I think in all scientific pursuits, we also do have to be realistic with ourselves to a degree, like the probability of success is never that high, but there's just, just something like really exhilarating about this notion that well, like maybe we're really sitting on the mother load there. It's like, if we, if we just dig a few more feet, we'll unlock this enormous capability. I think that that's really exciting. And that really is the thing that gets me out of bed for this job every morning. Now you say powerful, but I hear as part of powerful, I, I feel like I hear a certain optimism that it's powerful in a good way. Can you say a bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. 
Well, I think that there's certainly things that we have to be careful about with any new technology. But I think that, you know, at the same time, we do have to also keep in mind that the potential for technologies that save a degree of human labor, it's not what well, I might just pejorative a call first world problems. Like you say, like, oh, yeah, I want a robot butler because that's cool because then I don't have to, like, do my laundry. But that's not really all it is. There are lots of people that do jobs that are not pleasant that they don't necessarily want to be doing. And I think that robotics that reduces the, the reliance on humans in settings that humans really should not be doing, that, that are better off done by machines, I think that's a positive thing. I think we, you know, we as a society have to handle that in, a, in an appropriate way. We have to make sure that everyone comes out better out of that, not just the, the people that are, happen to be in the right place at the right time. But if we can deal with the social aspect of it, I think that the kind of human quality of life effect of effective AI technologies, both in robotics and elsewhere, I think that effect should be extremely positive. And it's just, this is one of those things where we, you know, just by our nature, I think we tend to be less concerned about how bad the status quo is and more concerned about how bad things might be if they change. Because it's like, well, the status quo is kind of what we're used to. But I think that the potential improvement in human quality of life kind of across the board from machines that can do a lot more of these things, both the, the jobs that people don't necessarily want to do and also accelerating the jobs that people do want to do. I think the effect of it could be enormous, you know, from accelerating scientific progress to giving the elderly and the disabled better quality of life. Like in all these areas, it's, it's a huge potential. Now, when you think about maybe a high school student today who might be very excited about AI and think of that as a career they might want to pursue, do you have some Pointers maybe, what might be a good way to get going and start learning the right things, get engaged in this? Okay, so there's kind of the obvious stuff. Like I'm sure that most people listening to this will, will know that there's kind of resources they can find online for classes and things like that. But something that I would say here that is maybe a little bit less obvious is that for getting started in science, like, yeah, you need the basics. You need to know like kind of what people are doing now. But at the same time, you have to remember that to be a successful scientist, you have to do the things that people haven't done yet which means that in addition to learning about the really hot thing, the cutting edge thing today, the Coursera course on machine learning, the, the, the deep RL course, whatever, you also have to get the right foundations so that you actually have some hope of discovering those things that people haven't done yet. And I, I think that in the short term, people will, will make good progress by just like getting the latest, greatest deep learning, whatever. But in the long term, success will come from really investing into those foundations and getting that right. Now, that's easier said than done because, of course, all of machine learning, statistics, optimization, etc., that's a very broad thing. So you have to kind of find the right materials. Of course, if you're working with a mentor, if, you're, if you have a research supervisor, part of their job is to help you, direct you in finding those things. And it's not easy, but that's a really important part of it. So generally, a really solid curriculum, certainly a solid college curriculum, will put people on the right path towards that. But it's important kind of not to neglect that and to, and to really remember that that's actually where a lot of the mileage will come from for finding the new things, not just the things that people have already done. Well, that's some wonderful advice. Sergey, this, this has been a w absolutely wonderful conversation. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me here, Peter. <laughs>